Welcome back to Great Quarter Guys, episode 60. I'm your host, Andrew Cox. This is a show where the lines between freight and finance are none. I've got Seth home with me as well. We are remote today. I've got a new background. If you can see, I put some good effort into this, put some plants behind me. I'm enjoying it, uh, freshening up the room. We have got a great topic today. We're going to talk about forward air and the activist investors that are circling it, including a former CFO and former co-founder that are looking to add board seats, take over the executive chairman uh, role, and implement a bevy of new changes to the company, trying to get the company back to where it was in the early 2000s, which was a, a very clear, uh, pure play LTL uh, company that did very well with a specialty in airport transport. So we'll get to that. We're going to go through you care or not first. I've got four of them for you today. So Seth, this is, of course, our gauntlet of interest. I will lay out a topic, idea, or an event. You tell me whether you care or not and why. All right. First one is a company that you and I have been looking after for a couple months now, but this is IMAX, uh, despite 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 continued capacity limitations of at least 75% across China, IMAX saw opening Lunar New Year weekend box office grow a whopping 45% over its record-breaking 2019. Seth, you care or not? I care, yeah. And I, I think it's notable. Um, first of all, I didn't understand that, uh, that press release. Does that mean that they're only operating at 25% of capacity and yet they grew? Um, or does yeah, that mean yeah, that they're operating at 75 That was operating at 75 Okay. Well, still impressive. I mean, to me, the greater uh, the greater message there is there is life after the coronavirus. Um, so I think that's what the read through is, even and even before vaccine, you know, max vaccine. So um, one of the reasons why I liked IMAX is as opposed to AMC. It's got a much better balance sheet. It's actually got net cash, and it's got a lot of exposure to the Asian market, where you're already seeing. Um, you know, movie theater box office trends um, operate above 2019, not 2020, but above 2019. And um, and so um, I think, you know, it's a hopeful message. And, and, and hopefully we see the same thing here in the U.S. and in the, in the not too distant future. Absolutely. I agree as well. I mean, COVID is under control in China. They have a handful of cases every day and people are flocking to do all the things that COVID uh, didn't allow them to do over the past year. This is that generational release of pent up demand that you and I talk about almost every week on here for services. That is generational re release of pent up demand for services. And I just found this very funny. There was the movie that uh, had the biggest box office weekend uh, over the, the first weekend of Lunar New Year was Detective Chinatown 3. It did $424 million in sales on opening weekend, and that's uh, a record box office break for opening weekend. For comparison, Endgame, Avengers Endgame, only did $357 million. So Detective Chinatown 3 smashed the record there. Seth, do you know, um, do you know anything about numbers at Disney parks in China or Asia? Are they having a pretty good rebound as well? People getting out and just wanting to do things? So uh, I listened to the Disney earnings call the other day, probably the first 15 minutes, but I did not finish it up. Um, I know that Disney uh, World in Orlando is operating at about, I want to say about 30% capacity and is doing the best. And then Disneyland in California, which is a much smaller park, that in Disneyland, uh, Shanghai are are, are going to open soon in the future, or else they're going to um, are they're going to be able to increase the attendance levels. But I do not remember the details um, on that. Okay, just checking. I, just, I have a feeling they're going to roar back, just like these movies will. Uh, I think it's great for IMAX. It's great for services. Every, everyone uh, that wants this quick recovery in the U.S. should take this as a definite definite positive moving forward. All right, so let's talk about some a little bit less positive news. Actually, some negative news. That's consumer sentiment. 
So it slipped in February to its lowest point since August. The preliminary estimate from the University of Michigan came in at 76.2, down from 79 in January. Seth, you care or no? I do care, and I, th I think you have to care. This one was a little surprising to me. This one slipped by me. I didn't, I didn't notice. Um, you know, that's that's pretty low um, in terms of just sequentially, and it takes you all the way back to uh, a few months back in terms of levels. And it it was really weak. Uh, the two areas where it was really weak were among the lower income segment, which surprised me a little bit, given all the stimulus flowing out there. Uh, and then and also in terms of the future outlook, um, which I'm also a little bit surprised by because at least for me, and I thought most other Americans, uh, it seems like things are going to be better, um, you know, in, in a couple quarters down the road. So uh, what was your take? Yeah, my takeaway was I cared about this one, but I wasn't so much worried about it. If, if you've been watching this consumer sentiment and overlay it with COVID cases or COVID uh, hospitalizations or deaths, whatever trend metric you really want to take, they, they're pretty well inversely, uh, invest, inversely related. You see the peaks and valleys co coincide at the same time. So January was a terrible month for COVID. I think it was our, our deadliest month of the of the pandemic so far. So I think that that does weigh on consumer minds when they're taking this, uh, when they're doing this survey. So I'm not all too worried about it. I do think it's going to snap back and then rise here in February. As you said, it does seem like there is this sentiment changing in the country. There, the media is covering the, the, the vaccine rollout and the pandemic in a different way than they were just a month ago. And then I was going to mention something about the where it was concentrated. As you said, it, mo most of the decline in sentiment was concentrated in the lower income um, demographics, but that's exactly who's set to benefit the most from the upcoming stimulus. So, you right. know, although it's not great to see them declining in sentiment, I mean, there's almost like a, a pull forward of bad sentiment before the money hits, right. so to speak. I agree um, with and, that, but I did see the I did see the survey period was something like January 27th to February 10th which surprised me a little bit. So it should be able to capture a little bit of that. So we'll, we'll see. But like you, I, I do agree with you that I, I think that uh, we're likely to see a sequential rebound next month because uh, you, you were sort of at the low point of both COVID and, and, um, and the stimulus not being dispersed yet. Right. I mean, last thing I was going to mention here was that you and I watched that Bank of America consumer spending data like a hawk every week, Thursday morning. And, you know, spending has stayed strong throughout the month. I mean, I think it finished up Five and a half percent, or something in that range, up a year. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I mean, ten percent, yeah, yeah. So you know, and then on additionally to that, when they the last report they put out week before last, they they spoke about California in particularly and how uh, they just had an explosion of of spending as soon as the the restrictions were eased in California. So I think that there's just a lot of pent up demand. The savings rate remains high. I'm not too worried about this consumer sentiment number. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And 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 you got to take into account the consumer balance sheet, which we which we always right. talk about. I mean, typically you see consumer balance sheets wrecked in a recession. Um, although it's been the opposite here, we we talked about it a lot. Savings rate has doubled. Um, you know, actual discretionary income is up because of stimulus and and unemployment assistance and all that kind of thing. So I think that you're right in terms of. When uh, when you get that reopening, like we've started to see a little bit in California, there's no sort of barriers to to that uh, pinup demand being unleashed. Right. Precisely. I think it's going to be a uh, one for the books uh, when we finally get the, the entire vac or we get a big enough population uh, vaccinated to open everything up and get back to concerts and sports and and everything else. All right. Let's move on to we've got two car stories to finish up. You care or not. The first one is on the Apple car or 
a lack thereof so far. Uh, the discussions have fizzled with another automaker. This time it is uh, Japanese-based Nissan. Seth, you care or not about Apple falling out conversations with another automaker? I care, yeah. You know, I'm an Apple shareholder. I'm a believer here. And, um, you know, it's interesting to me. Yeah, you're starting to see uh, multiple headlines in a row. And, and what's interesting is the press is all over this. Usually Apple tries to be extremely quiet about this. And I think that's one reason why the Hyundai and the uh, Kia negotiations might have fallen through because someone at their organization seemed to have leaked this to the press. Um, but Nissan, I thought, had an interesting quote, which you and I talked about offline. Uh, one employee there said the reason why, essentially the reason why the talks had fallen through is when you work with Apple, you're giving up your soul and your profit margins, which I thought was both um, humorous and, uh, and interesting. And I think that's true. So one thing I think we need to consider here is that uh, given the relationship Apple has and the leverage that it typically has over its suppliers, they're not even allowed to mention the company by name on earnings calls. You have to wonder, while I think there's a very long list uh, all the way up to like the premium end, like BMW or Mercedes or anyone like that would probably love to work with Apple. But then you have to consider the fact that you know, is that worth it when you're not even allowed to talk about the business? You're probably not even allowed to separate the financials uh, for your investors and, and show how that's doing. Is it is it worth it to the company? So I think those are all things that, that need to be figured out. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that. And I, I care about this one. I wanted to mention, yeah, Rob Maurer uh, of Tesla Daily, the best Tesla analyst I think there is out there who doesn't... Uh, who doesn't work for an investment banking company. He's fantastic. You guys should go follow him. But he believes that this Apple car will probably never happen. And if it does happen, it'll be at least a decade away. And one of his big reasons is that, that they have so much power over their suppliers when it comes to making phones and computers that they're not going to be able to flex that type of power on a $50,000 or $100,000 vehicle. Like they have to be demanding so much if nobody is wanting to work for them, or at least we're not getting reports right. that anybody wants to work well, so for them. Well, so they could just buy whoever they wanted though um, and solve exactly. that problem immediately. Yeah, so like that's what I was going to discuss. I don't want to get too too far down the weeds here, but if you know, this is just a discussion of whether they should be looking domestically or internationally. As you mentioned before, we came on here, is they've been looking towards Asian manufacturing, typically uh, South right. Korean and and Japanese with Kia and Nissan, rather than looking at Ford, GM, or some of the domestic manufacturers that haven't done so well over the last you know two decades. Like, why aren't they looking towards American manufacturing? You think? That's a good question, and I, I think maybe it's something to do with the efficiencies and the and the software and the hardware integration that they're looking for. Who knows? Um, I, I don't think anyone knows, but um, you know, uh, I, I do know that they could buy even GM. I mean, uh, I don't I don't remember Apple's cash balance off the top of my head, but it's in the hundreds of billions, and they could easily yeah. swallow GM instantly, even at a fifty percent premium, uh, and take over everything. So. Uh, at the end of the day, I don't think it's a roadblock, and maybe they will. Um, my understanding is uh, that Ford's new CEO, Jim Farley, kind of uh, insinuated on the con conference call that he would like to work with Apple. So I, I, I don't think that's a uh, I don't think that's off the table in, in any instance. And Ford, by the way, their market cap is something like what is it like a third of GM's? I mean, that would yeah, be, absolutely, be absolutely nothing for Apple to. It'd be like a ten dollar bill for Apple to acquire Ford. <laughs> 
Yeah, the, the last two things I was going to note here is not only um, not working with Chinese manufacturers or Asian manufacturers, rather, but why not? Why aren't they going after? I guess, well, if they are, we wouldn't know about it. But working with Foxconn or these manufacturing companies in China that are building these uh, EV kits, more or less, where you can just they'll give you the hardware and you just put your own software and branding on it. Like that seems like a viable option. They're probably exploring it. I mean, let's let's be honest. And then uh, I, I wonder if if they see the same problems that Tesla sees when Tesla is looking at Ford or GM and looking at manufacturing capacity that they could possibly buy. You know, they've they've said all along that because they're they've built their own systems from the ground up, that having to uh, refurbish and 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 retransition a Ford factory to make Teslas would be far more expensive than just building a, a Tesla factory from the ground up. So I wonder if Apple sees that as a potential problem as well. Uh, and whether they're going to buy uh, a company or not, but let's let's leave it there and let's move on to Forward Air by active, activist investors at Ancora Holdings. Ancora is uh, they've they've also got a couple people involved that were formerly uh, that was a co-founder Niswanger, a co-founder at Forward Air, and Andy Clark, a former CFO at Forward Air, who were very successful when they were there. So let's start with what was Forward Air. Uh, back in the early 2000s under Andy Clark and Niswanger. And then we'll get into what has happened and what Ancora wants to do to right the ship. So you want to start with just, you know, talk about Forward Air and what they were. You just did a research report on this last week. Right. Yeah, we did a passport special topic, which we do every Thursday on this. Um, easiest way to describe Forward Air is it was kind of a uh, specialized asset light expedited airport LTL. Now, that's a that's a mouthful, but um, <laughs> basically they do not own their own trucks and they employ their own drivers, and they were moving freight from airport to airport uh, via LTL. And back then, um, uh, Andy Clark, so Niswanger founded the company back in about 1990, I believe, uh, and Andy Clark was there uh, as CFO from 2001 to 2006, and then he moved on to be... Um, CFO of C.H. Robinson, and he also ran Panther Expedited. So he knows the business really well. But back then, when those two guys were there, it was just that pure play airport LTL business. And um, back in the day, uh, it, given it, it was it was a pure play, they were really just focused on operating that uh, airport LTL business as efficiently as possible. And so a lot of the metrics that investors care about, things like ORs, operating ratios, return on invested capital, revenue, Pricing freights profitably, all these things, they looked really good from that perspective, uh, call it, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago since those guys left. Uh, and then over the last, really over the last five years in particular, but over the last 10 plus years, um, the company has been taken over by a different set of uh, management teams, and they've pursued a diversification strategy. And Ancora, which is a private equity uh, firm that takes activist stakes as paired with uh, Andy Clark, as well as the former co-founder, they would attest that Forward Air has diversified, which is a, uh, you know, a, a common investment term, which basically means they've been making all sorts of acquisitions, but they've been really dilutive in terms of not driving shareholder value. The stock has really lagged its peers. Uh, the margins have come down a lot. And so the returns on capital, because they're getting into a lot uh into a lot of new businesses like uh, Final Mile, uh, Intermodal, Drayage, 
uh, stuff like that that is lower margin and lower return. And so what Ancora has done is they bought up a 6% stake in the in the stock, which is it's about a $2.5 billion company. So they've got a couple hundred million, and they're agitating for change. They want them to go back to what they were, and they want to get rid of all these new and uh, underperforming business segments. So that's that's probably the best overview. Yeah, that is a good overview. Let's go through uh, some of that diversified. Let's detail a little bit of the diversification. So they, you know, we won't go into what they bought, but let's talk about how much money they spent, what kind of return on invested capital they had before uh, while Andy Clark was there, and how it's fallen pretty dramatically since then. Yeah. So um, the you know broad numbers. Apologize, I got to look at our script here because I can't. There's too many numbers to remember off the top of my head. But so they made okay. 19 acquisitions. Uh, totaling about $600 million, and only one of those has been in their core LTL business. So that speaks to the fact 18 of the 19 of those have been outside of LTL. Um, So, And then this one business that they bought called Pool Distribution, they've actually – they sold it for $20 million, but they paid a lot more for it, and it basically got written off in the discontinued operations, uh, which was just a symbolic of this acquisition strategy. But when you combine that with the fact that you've got $600 million in acquisitions and then they've spent $400 million in CapEx over the last decade plus, Ancora basically says that they've squandered about a billion dollars in capital with not much to show for it. Because when you look at uh, they, they, the, the two main comps that the, uh, Ancora has used for this business, even though it's not there's no real apples-to-apples pure-play comp, given the fact that this is an airport and an asset-light LTL rather than an asset-heavy. Um, but they really focused on ODFL and SIA, which is probably not a surprise because those businesses have done really well in the stock market right. and have very high multiples. But they basically said, and then, and then to your last question, uh, the return on capital and the margin degradation is just striking. It's hard to argue with. So uh, looking here, ROIC averaged nearly 40% back when, uh, when Andy Clark was at the company. And now that's come all the way down to about 15% today. And, it, and it's been in a steady straight line, you know, down and to the right. Uh, and the same thing with uh, on the other side, on the OR, the OR was uh, 80, averaged about the low, certainly the low 80s, but around 80 when they were there. And it even was below 80. Uh, in some quarters, which is a fantastic sort of Old Dominion-esque uh, operating margin. And that, over the last 12 months, has you know, um, degraded by more than 1,000 basis points. I think over the last 12 months, or uh, if you look, they just reported earnings, I think it was over 90. So it went from 80 to over 90 in, uh, in about a decade. And so Encore thinks they can get it back to that 80, 80 range and drive a ton of shareholder value by just basically chopping the company up uh, reducing expenses, repricing the business, and all sorts of other things that we can get into. Yeah, let's circle back around to Encore's plans and what they've laid out in their their couple of letters that they've written. Let's talk. Let's talk about the the transition period or the the last ten years on how the company can lose a thousand points of uh, operating margin or operating ratio in uh, in a decade. So, talk to me about. How the freight was how the freight was priced, um, and how this M and A strategy kind of diverted the company's attention away from its core business. Yeah, I mean, I thought I personally, um, I would I would advise all of our listeners to go out there and read this letter. Maybe we could post it in the show notes. It's about a twenty page letter, and it's a really good read. And um, 
it, there's some charts in there that are particularly striking. I mean, uh, you, you referenced the operating ratio. So they showed the operating ratio of forward and then with XPO, which is XPOs is down by over a thousand basis points while uh, forwards is up by over a thousand basis points. And then, you know, SIA and Old Dominion are somewhere in between, but they're both down a lot. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, again, this is this is all Ancora saying this. I did not cover the company on either the buy or the sell side, so I'm relatively new to it. But I think it's it's fairly clear that basically they lost some focus here, and they weren't uh, they lost that that laser focus on the operations. And so there was a couple other charts here in the letter that basically spoke to the fact that yeah, uh, Forward did grow their revenue, but they did it organically. Uh, they weren't growing that much. They were growing it a lot through acquisitions. And then also they were underpricing the business. And so they weren't profitably pricing freight. So the, the, the cost per shipment or the cost per ton, which are important measures uh, for the efficiency of an LTL provider, were growing at, at a far faster rate uh, than revenue was on an equivalent basis, which really just hit those margins. And so uh, Ancora really wants them to focus on sort of balancing that network going back to basics in terms of blocking and tackling and LT, operating an LTL company, which is um, you know, only taking on freight if it fits well in your network and you can carry it pro uh, profitably. And so there's a lot of stuff that they're going to do. It's a lot of stuff that's, that's fairly simple, but probably hard to execute. And, uh, and, it, and it, in order to do it, you need people that know the business really well. And I think that's where Ancora and particularly Andy Clark and Nieswanger, uh, the founder, have a lot of credibility because they, they clearly, they at least used to have very intimate knowledge of the operations of that particular company and the LTL industry. Yeah, I wanted to. There was an amazing chart in that letter. We'll definitely post it in the show notes, but there's an amazing chart where they compare uh, the, the delta between the percentage change in uh, price and the percentage change in cost for these different LTL providers, and they compare forward to the other one. So let me just read you some of this data. So from 2014 to 27, or 2019, the delta between price and cost increases was negative at forward. It was negative 12%, meaning that cost rose 12% faster than price did. Uh, but ODFL was the complete opposite. They grew, uh, their delta was plus 12%, SIA was plus 5%, and XBO was a whopping plus 18%. Uh, that happens, that has to do a lot with uh, XBO's ability to bring down that OR, you know, a, a thousand basis points over the same period that forwards rose a thousand points. And then I think there's two other points that Ancora mentioned in their, uh, in their letter that are, that are worth mentioning. And one of them is this this negative mix shift in purchase transportation spend, because this is something that, you know, I didn't really think through uh, when I read you guys' letter. And then it, it made a lot of sense when I read their letter. They've had this big mix shift away from owner operators carrying most of their freight to now using uh, third party carriers as moving right. their freight. And it's much more expensive, I think, under uh, under Niswonker and and uh, and Clark back in 2007, they were roughly 30 percent um, third party carriers and 70 percent. Yes. Um, owner -owned. and now that's flipped to about 50 50 and so it's just more expensive it's poorer service it's much more difficult for them to uh, to get to make that make that work and then there was another a big point that was they've had this major deterioration in productivity uh not only from their operations from their freight handlers so as you said they're asset light they don't own any for they don't own any um any trucks or drivers but they have lots of people that handle freight and they have lots of terminals right. and the freight the freight handler productivity has decreased about 10 percent since 2010 and their ratio of freight handlers to the rest of their employees has gone up a lot so they've become kind of 
what what uh, Encora believes to be bloated and have a lot of kind of excess fat, uh, so to say. Yeah, I mean, so has also their corporate and back office uh, staff and, and productivity and number of employees. Um, but I think it speaks to the greater, one of the biggest themes of Ancora's letter was, it seems like where they had a, a large sort of philosophical disagreement is Forward's current management team seems to be pursuing a strategy of growth at all costs, and they don't like that. They want they only want to grow. So at the end of the day, whether it's an LTL or you're selling widgets, uh, ultimately you need to sell that at a profit. And we've seen a lot of this stuff, same stuff play out with uh, uh, UPS Freight in terms of the bundling strategy where a lot of those, you know, a, a, a meaningful percentage of that business that TFII is taking over was priced at 125 OR because it allowed them to penetrate the, the, the parcel network. So I think there's a lot there. Uh, and in terms of uh, just going back to what you mentioned, so uh, not only has that ratio of, uh, you know, owner ops to third-party capacity, it's blown out from 50-50 a decade ago to 70-30. Uh, what's so bad about that is the third-party carriers, not only are they more expensive, but they offer worse service. Uh, and so that what that really does is that kills your pricing power. So you get into this, they've gotten into this negative feedback loop where they can't, they basically can't get out of, and it's just killing their margins and it's killing their returns. And also, um, you know, we as a team, you know, we did some phone calls for this research report and, and we were basically told that, uh, that, that um, much the same as uh, UPS freight, uh, that this business was probably underinvested from a technological perspective. So if you think about an LTL, like XPO in particular, they're investing hundreds of millions or billions in technology to sort of streamline that business and improve freight visibility and tracking and efficiency and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and when you do that, you get you get better service metrics and happy customers, which allows you to raise price. So there's an element of that to this story as well, where they're going to have to invest in some tech to sort of bring it up to, to par with some of their peers, I think. Yeah, you're right. The LTL industry is very tech heavy. Um, that was one place where Ancola, Ancora rather, said that uh, that would be a place of focus for them was changing up the investment strategy when it comes to technology. They also plan to strengthen the senior management team, which is bringing on Andy Clark as the executive chairman. What else are they planning to do uh, to, to right this ship? How are they planning on getting the, that OR? They said they've seen a thousand points of, of improvement that is available to them in the L in the core LTL business. How do they plan on achieving it? Yeah, I mean, uh, so I'm gonna go to my first page of my report. So the the strategy basically centers around some pillars. At the core of it, it's return to its roots, right? And so get rid of they want to basically sell off the intermodal bit in the drainage business and and get 300 million dollars for it and then buy back stock with it. Um, they also think that just in terms of the core business, it's basically basic blocking and tackling. It's it's going through the customer book, decide who we want to be customers, who actually makes money for us, and repricing where needed, improving that yield, uh, and then going through all those cost cuts, whether it be uh, you know optimizing that mix between third party and owner ops. They're going to try to bring it back. Uh, the other way and back towards owner operators. Uh, they're going to try to trim some of the fat in terms of both sort of freight handlers and back office and corporate uh, uh, expenses uh, and, and improve that employee productivity, productivity, excuse me. And then the last two things are more sort of financially oriented. So 
at the end of the day, this is an asset light business. So it's, it's distinct from X, uh, Echo Logistics, who is also an asset light um, uh, LTL, but they're a pure broker. So they don't have, they don't like employ the freight handlers. They just employ the brokers. Uh, and so, but this business does throw off a lot of cash in it and it has, and it, and it potentially has very good margins, which can allow you to uh, up the target leverage. So they want to take the target right now. Uh, debt to EBITDA is about 0.5 turns, as they say in the business. And they want to take that. They want to at least take that up four times to two, which they think they would be very comfortable at. And they want to right now buy back the stock at 85 because they think they can make it if they implement all these changes, they can make it worth 150 or 200 dollars, you know, a couple of years down the road. So uh, I think there's something to note here as well that and Cora said in their uh, letter that that there's been no insider share purchase. I was just amazed by this. There's been not a singular single uh, insider share purchase since 2009. And that's uh, over the same 10 years industry uh, or insiders have sold 125 million in stock. So, you know, you, you tell me this all the time. If you see executives and you see um, the insiders buying more shares, it's almost always a good it's almost always a good story. That's right. true. So um, yeah, so uh, I, I do. I agree with you. That's striking, but it's it's perhaps not as unique as you would. I followed insider sales and buying closely for years and years, and selling is a lot more common. Uh, there's only okay. one reason why. Well, there's really two reasons. People say there's only one reason why you buy. Uh, there's only two reasons. They think it's going up, or they want to send a PR move. Uh, to the public, but uh, in general, they only because they think it's going up, but definitely not a good thing. Right. All right. That is unfortunately all the time. It always goes by so fast. So I've got to wrap it up here. Seth, I got you one good question though. Wednesday, we've got uh, retail sales coming out. What's it going to look like tomorrow? Uh, according to Bank of America, really strong. Yes, I hope so as well. I think they're expecting 4% plus. Yeah. Uh, so everyone stay on the tune for that. We'll be back next week live from the Global Supply Chain uh, Summit. We will have Home Depot with us as a guest. We will see you then. Have a good week.